we have notes um, because we're gonna read. Um, we're gonna go through again some scriptures. So we're gonna read from Hebrews chapter one, verses five to verse fourteen. So let me give you the background again of what's going on. Um, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, and um, the, the, these were a group of believers who were Jewish. And then they came to know Christ. And then it seems like because of persecution, they wanted to go back to, their, to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote this book to them in a way to tell them, don't do it. And as I mentioned to you before, the first almost 10 chapters, he's arguing how Christianity is superior to Judaism, particularly how Christ is superior than all the Old Testament elements. That's the first 10 chapters. And then after that, he gives them some practical uh, tips how they can live their lives and endure persecution and not go back to Judaism. Um, we're in chapter 1. Uh, in the first three verses, verse 1 to 3, the author of Hebrews was arguing that Christ is superior to the prophets. We spent four weeks talking about that, or three weeks. As I mentioned earlier, verse 4 is kind of transitional. And then from verse 5 till all the way to the to verse 18 of chapter 2, he's arguing that Christ is superior than the angels. Again, uh, throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through one of two ways, either through the prophets, I mean, most of the messages came from the prophets or the angels. So these two items, elements, cover pretty much uh, the major chunk of the Old Testament. And by arguing that Christ is superior than the prophets and superior than the angels, then the author of Hebrews is really arguing in effect effectively that Christ is superior than everything you know in the Old Testament. We're now focusing on verse 5 all the way to verse 14 in chapter 1. And that's when the author of Hebrews is arguing that Christ is superior than the angels. And, he's, and that is demonstrated by the Old Testament. So from verse 5 to verse 14 of chapter 1, the author of Hebrews is quoting scripture from the Old Testament to prove that even from the Old Testament, you can see that Christ is superior than all the angels. In these uh, nine verses, he quoted seven different scriptures from the Old Testament to prove his point that Christ is superior. So let's read them and then I'm going to insert a little bit of comments as we go. These are the seven verses the author of Hebrews quoted to prove from the Old Testament the supremacy of Christ over the angels. Verse 5, for which of the angels he ever said, that's the first quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that's a quote from Psalm 2, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. And that's a quote from 1 Samuel chapter 7, if I remember correctly. So these two quotes right there say that Jesus is superior because he is the son, the messianic son of God, who was appointed son as well on the day of his resurrection. Verse 7, and when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he say, let all the angels of God worship him. That's the third quote. And we argued that last time that it, it's probably from Deuteronomy uh, 32. Um, so he's saying that Jesus is superior than the angels because the angels worship him. Therefore, he is superior than the angels. Amen. That's the third quote. The, the fourth quote we read in verse 7. 
And of the angel he said, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers flames of fire. Today we're going to take all the way, verse 7, all the way to verse 12. So we're going to do five verses. So we're going to break all of that down in a little bit. Verse 8, but as of the sun, so in terms of the angel, he said, he makes his angel spirit and his ministers flames of fire. In comparison to that, when it comes to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and forever. A specter of righteousness is the specter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hate lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's a quote from Psalm 45. We're going to talk about that. And now he's moving to quote number two, talking about Jesus. And he said, you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain, they will all grow old like a garment, like a clock. They, uh, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will never fail. So in verses 7 all the way to verse 12, really the author of Hebrews is contrasting verse 7 on one hand versus verse 8 to 12 on the other hand. You guys follow me? When it comes to the angel, he said, you make your, your angels like ministers and flames of fire. But as of the sun, on the other hand, he quotes two different scriptures here. The first one from Psalm 45, when he said, your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth. And that's a quote from Psalm 102. We're going to talk about that. So that is six quotes so far from the Old Testament. Then verse 13 and 14, that probably will be next week. But to which of the angels he has ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's a quote from Psalm 110 verse 1. That's a psalm about Jesus. Are they not all ministering spirit sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So in that last part, verse 13 and 14, Jesus is the master who's sitting on the throne. The angels are the ministers who even came to minister to us. So that tell us about the superiority of Christ. Amen? So four parts, even though it's seven quotes here, but it's really four, four main points that the author of Hebrews is emphasizing. Number one, Jesus is greater because he has inherited the, the name Son of God. That's verse um, five. Number two, Jesus is greater because angels worship him. That's verse six. Verse 7 to 12, Jesus is greater because angels are made ministers, but Jesus is God in his nature. That's verse um, 7 to 12. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus is greater because Jesus is master, but angels are servants. That's why Jesus is greater than the angels. Amen? So let's zoom in a little bit more in verse 7 to verse um, 12. Verse 7, and of the angel he said, he makes his angel spirits and his ministers flames of fire. For me, I think that the key word that the author of Hebrews is trying to emphasize here from quoting Psalm 01 is the word that makes. When he said, who makes his angels um, spirits and his ministers flame of fire. The idea here is... The author of Hebrews is telling us that the angels are made, that they're created beings. That's the main 
point, and I'll show you why. Because later on in verse 8 to verse 12, he's contrasting the angels with Christ. And he said, while the angels are created being, Jesus was never created. He is God in his nature. And he emphasizes that from verse 8 to verse 12. You guys are with me? So in verse 8 to verse 12 here, again, the idea is angels are created. Jesus is the never-changing God in his nature. The first quote he has is from Psalm 45, verses 5 and 6. That's why he quoted in verse 8 and 9 when he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. And he quoted a little bit longer. Now, let's go back to Psalm 45 to read the background of that quote because it's very, 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 very important. And it's a little bit tricky as well. So Psalm 45 Before we reach to verse 5 and 6, let's go all the way up and read the background of that quote to understand exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Verse 1 of Psalm 45. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning who? So who is Psalm 45 is written about? The king. And we're not talking about God the king. It talks about the earthly king. If you read throughout the psalm, this psalm is written to describe the majesty of the king. I think it was Solomon. It might be David, but I think it was Solomon at that time. So that psalm is really written to describe the majesty of the earthly king of Israel at that time. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Right? So he's talking about a human being. He's not talking about God the King. You guys are with me? You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever and forever. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 45 is talking about that earthly king. Amen? And then he continues to reach verse 6 when he says, Your throne, and then he calls the earthly king. You guys with me? Your throne, O God, is forever and forever. A specter of righteousness is a specter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, God, your God, because he's the earthly king, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You're with me so far? So that psalm in its context was not written about God. It was written about the earthly king. Now, The author of Hebrews took only verse 5 and 6 and he applied that to Christ and he said that part, your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. Your specter of righteousness is a specter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. That's why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And that kind of, uh, you know, seems like the author of Hebrews is taking this out of context in a way and apply it to the Son. So let's dig closer and deeper into that. Here it says in verse 8 and 9, addressing the Son, Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. Amen? And as Trinitarians, all of us here believe in the Trinity, we take this as a solid proof and say, here it is. Jesus is being addressed as God, right? And we take this and run with it and say, how come the Bible says Jesus is God? And here is a, a proof that Jesus is God. Well, if you're a Jehovah Witness or a non-believer or somebody who uh, reads some liberal theology, you might say, pause a little. There's a lot of problems with that verse. So let's dig a little bit deeper into it. Amen? Um, Jesus, by the way, was described as God nine times in the New Testament. 
John 1, 1, John 1, 18, John 20, 28, um, Acts 20, 29, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, Hebrews 1, 8, that's the verse we're in, 2 Peter 1, 1, and 1 John 5, 20. Nine times Jesus was mentioned to be God or he was described as God in the New Testament. Eight out of these times, every time the word God is used for Jesus, it's more of a description to his nature. You guys are with me? With one exception, right here in Hebrews 1.8. When it's not a description of his nature, it's vocative. Like you're calling him, saying, your throne, oh God. You're talking to Jesus and say vocatively, your throne, oh God. That's the only time where Jesus was vocally addressed as, oh God. And again, as Trinitarian, we will say this is a solid proof of the deity of Christ. And I believe that it is, but it's not without arguing a little bit. Okay, so people like Jehovah Witness uh, will take this and say, well, hold your horses. There are, a lot, there are a lot of problems with this verse before you say that it tells us that Jesus is God. Number one, there are grammatical problems. Number two, there are problems how this verse is quoted from the Old Testament. And number three, there are problems in the text itself that tells us that Jesus might not be God. You guys ready? Okay, ready for some fireworks? Yep. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's say with the grammatical problem. Why, why there's problems grammatically with these words, your throne, O God? It's because how Psalm 45 was actually written, right? This was written to address the earthly king, right? And yet it was written to address the earthly king. The, the earthly king in the original context was called your throne, O God. He's called as God. So some people start you know debating maybe we're translating this wrong maybe the hebrew here or the septuagint the greek translation really should not have been your throne O god and there are a couple of other alternative translations to that and from a grammatical point of view they're valid there is nothing wrong with that other translation from a grammatical point of view and the other translations are god is your throne Okay, so instead of saying your throne, oh God, it goes God is your throne or your throne is God. Okay, so these are two other possible translations. Grammatically, there is no problem with them. So the idea will go like this, that, that the psalmist is addressing the king and saying God is your throne or your throne is founded in God or your throne is so divine. You know, a specter of righteousness is the specter of your kingdom. So by translating it this way, we're not addressing the earthly king as, oh God. You guys with me? Mm -hmm. So this is one way of looking at it. And this, this translation will eliminate the difficulty of calling the earthly king God, vocally addressing the earthly king in Psalm 45 as God. Well, there's problems with that. There's a lot of problems. Every single reliable translation of the Greek from the Septuagint or from the New Testament has this translation as your throne, O God, has it vocatively, okay? With the exception of the RSV, uh, the Revised Standard Version, and the NEB has it in the margin as God is your throne, okay? But other than that, every single reliable translation translate that phrase from Greek as your throne, O God, vocative. And there is a reason for that, right? This is not just because we want to defend our theology that Jesus is God and we're manipulating the text just to make it say this. There is a lot of grammatical reasons why your throne, O God, is really the 
the most accurate and the best translation. I'm not going to go into all the Greek stuff here, but if you want to study and know why this is really the most reliable and best translation, uh, you can actually go to our website on under resources, the deity of Christ on trial, chapter 6. There is like extensive analysis on the Greek of that word and why, why, uh, why each translation is valid and why it's not valid and what is the best conclusion. Ultimately, the best translation is your throne, O God. And the earthly king in Psalm 45 and Jesus in the New Testament was addressed vocally as O God. That's, that's the ultimate conclusion. You guys study more into all of that if you want to. And there is another problem even with the translation, God is your throne, or your throne is God. There's a major problem with that. And the problem is the meaning is just off, doesn't make sense in a way. Even if that translation is grammatically correct, it doesn't make sense, right? God is your throne. Have you ever heard that phrase before? No, that like you're addressing somebody and say to the king, God is your throne. We're never seen in the scripture anywhere that God is the throne or using the throne as analogy to describe who God is, right? It's, it's never parallel anywhere in the scripture. It's, the meaning is odd. Even though it's grammatically acceptable, it doesn't mean that it is the right way to understand the intention of the uh, of Psalm 45 and of the author of the New Testament in, in, in Hebrews 1.8. You guys are with me? So far good? Grammatically, it's not really, it's acceptable, but it, the meaning is not straight. And number two, uh, the, to say that God is that throne, that's just unparalleled anywhere else in the scripture. So we're not going to twist it here to make it say something that it's not saying, especially because of the fact that Describing God as a throne never existed anywhere else in the scripture. Amen? Again and again, there is a reason why all reliable English translations translated Hebrews 1.8 as your throne, O God. There is a reason for that. Amen? Obviously, the new uh, world translation, the Jehovah Witness one says, God is your throne. You want to get rid of the calling Jesus as O God altogether. But it's not correct. It's not accurate. And it doesn't even make sense even if you want to go with that translation. So... Have I bored you yet? Okay, good. So there are some grammatical objections to our Deuter translation, but really it doesn't stand in examination. The translation, your throne, O God, will remain the most accurate, the most reliable translation of that phrase from Greek in Hebrews 1 and from Hebrew in Psalm 45. Now, the second objection for me is a whole lot more interesting than the first one. The first one is kind of dry and doesn't stand any ground. But the second objection are really, really tougher for me. So the second objection is say, okay, fine. A Jehovah Witness will tell you, fine. We'll go with your throne, O God. But remember this. This is a quote from Psalm 45, right? And who was addressed as God in Psalm 45? It was the king, the earthly king. So obviously the, the psalmist in Psalm 45 used the word God here metaphorically. He didn't really say that the king is God. He's just saying metaphorically you're like God in, because you exercise authority, right? And if the original quote is used the word God metaphorically to describe the king, then maybe that's how the author of Hebrews used it. He's not really saying that Jesus is God literally. He's using it metaphorically and it is supported by the way he even quoted from the original in Psalm 45. Fair enough? It's a good, it makes sense. Yeah, it's a valid argument. I cannot argue against that. So let's look into that. Is this true or not? Now, 
Let me pause a little bit, go backward, and then we'll address that issue. Every science in this world, I feel, I feel like, has its golden rule, okay? I am a pharmacist. Uh, I studied chemistry a lot in my undergrad. The very first lab I went to in my chemistry class, my TA, teacher assistant, told, me, told us this. I still remember it. He said, here is the golden rules when it comes to chemistry. And here's the golden rules. Don't trust any chemicals. That's the golden rules. You see something, you don't know what it is in a tube, don't mess with it, okay? <laughs> this is the golden rules when it comes to chemistry. And there's a golden rule also when it comes to the scripture, how you understand the Bible. And the golden rule in the scripture is this. Context is king. You guys with me? That's it. Context is king. If you want to understand the Bible, this is the number one rule how you understand the scripture. Context is king. For example, let me elaborate on that a little bit. Did you know that the Bible actually say there is no God? These words are written verbatim in the scripture. In Psalm 4, right? Or Psalm 3, something like that. The Bible actually say there is no God. But do you know what it said before that? The fool said in his heart, there is no God, right? So if you take that phrase alone, there is no God out of context, here you have the Bible teaching atheism. But when you put it in the context, it's not that at all. You guys are with me? It's the context. When you understand a verse, you understand it in its context. You don't take a verse out of the Bible, out of a passage, and try to say to understand what it means. I was watching uh, CNN one time, and this guy, he used to be a, uh, an FBI agent, and now he retired. And he was talking about how, again, context is everything, and how words can mean different things depending on the context. And this former FBI agent was talking about his former boss at the bureau, and he's saying, my boss once told me this. He said, I'm sorry and my bad are essentially the same exact phrase. I'm sorry, and my bad are essentially the exact same phrase unless you're in a funeral. You guys are with me? It's a totally different meaning if you're in a funeral. You got it? No? Okay, think about it. <laughs> if you're in a funeral and you're telling the, the, the mourners or whatever, my bad, that's not good. <laughs> okay, so, it's the context that makes the difference. Even though the wording can be the same, it's the context that can make the difference. And it's absolutely correct that Psalm 45 addressed the earthly king as God, right? There is no question about it. And it is so obvious from the context of Psalm 45 that that psalmist meant that in a metaphoric way. He obviously didn't mean to say that the king is actually God, right? He meant that in a metaphoric way. However, we cannot apply the same principles in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. Why? We have seen this before. The author of Hebrews, just in our chapter here, chapter 1, is never shy to claim and affirm the divinity of Christ over and over and over again, right? We talked about that in, in verse 2 and 3, how Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, right? We talked about that. The, the author of Hebrews say he's exactly like God. We talked about how the author of Hebrews tell us that he's the owner of everything, the heir of everything, the creator of everything. We talked last week how he's the one who's being worshipped and how that original context was applied to God, but the author of Hebrews applied that to Christ. Even when we move on to verse 10 and 12 and see how the author of Hebrews 
take a scripture that applies to the Father as the creator of everything and applies that to Jesus. So before that quote and after that quote, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the divinity of Christ over and over and over again. He's not shy to tell us that Jesus is God. There is no question about it. Amen? So even though the original context of that in Psalm 45, the word God is used metaphorically, we cannot say that the author of Hebrews is using that word metaphorically here. He must mean it literally because in the context before and after, he's saying that Jesus is God in his nature and he's not shy about that. You guys are with me? Okay, so that's the second objection. So the first objection is grammatical. The second objection is how it's quoted from the Old Testament. The third objection is, is a tough one as well. Now, the third, third objection is really hard. If you continue reading in, in, in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, it says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. You have loved righteousness. You have hated lawlessness. That's why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's a tough one here. And you say, well, they say, look at this. The Father is called Jesus or the Son's God. It's plain, it's simple, it's straight, it's direct in the text. And if God is Jesus, is the Father is Jesus God, therefore Jesus cannot be God. It makes sense, doesn't it, right? So let's look into that. Well, let's go even back and look in. That actually, that is not the only incidence here in Hebrews 1.9 where the Father is called the God of, of, of Jesus or the Son. It was mentioned multiple other times in the scripture. Jesus himself referred to God as my God. Remember when he was on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we can argue that Jesus here is speaking as a human in his human nature and calling the Father my God. That makes sense. That will pass. But in some other incidences, it seems from the context that Jesus is not just speaking as mere human being, but rather, even in terms of his eternal relationship with the Father, he's still addressing God as my God. Examples, uh, John 20, 17, Revelation 3, 2, and Revelation 3, 12. These three times, Jesus himself, again, speaking in context of his eternal relationship with God, and he addressing the Father as my God. As a matter of fact, the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a very common phrase that Paul used and Peter used many times in the Bible. You guys are with me? So this is not the only incidence really that we can see that the Father is, is called the God of Jesus or the God of the Son. And here's the answer to this. You guys are ready? There's no answer to it. There's <laughs> just nothing. I, uh, there is no way to explain it really. It's tension in the scripture and it's always there. There is no question that the Bible ad- teaches and tells us plainly and strongly recommend that and hint to that in hundreds of scripture that Jesus is equal to God in his nature. He's just just like him. There's no question about it. He's equal to him. There's no question about it, right? But somehow in the midst of this, while Jesus is still fully God in his nature, the Father somehow still remains his God. I don't understand it. I cannot explain it. I'll be lying to you here to give you an explanation for this, you know. But it's, it's tension. It's in the scripture. Both, somehow, they both work together. Somehow, 
Jesus doesn't crowd the Father and the Father is not crowding the Son. It's just they somehow coexist in that relationship. Amen? Amen. What I want to make sure that we understand is this. The fact that the Father is called the God of Jesus many, many times, you cannot, you cannot take that as a teaching or an indication that Jesus is not fully God in his nature. That the Son is lesser than the Father in his nature. Just because the scriptures say that the Father is the God of Jesus. You guys are with me? Again, we've been doing this for a few weeks. We, we're going to even see that there's hundreds, literally hundreds of scripture that teaches that Jesus is equal to the Father in his nature or strongly suggest that Jesus must be equal to the Father in his nature. If you're going to take that out of the window and argue like Jehovah Witness that Jesus is a lesser God or a junior God or created or anything like that, you're going to have a lot of problem with the scriptures, hundreds of scriptures that you have to twist. Amen? You with me so far? There's no explanation to it. There is just... Somehow they coexist together. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know that the Bible teaches both. So you can say you take the whole context. Yes, what correct. You cannot take just one part and just run with it. Again, context is king. You have to look at the bigger picture, what the Bible say throughout, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You guys are with me? I mean, that tension cannot be even more prominent than right here in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. It's just, this is the climax of that tension. The Son is addressed to be God, no question about it. It's definitely literal from the context of Hebrews chapter 1. Yet while the Son is being addressed as God, in the midst of it, the author of Hebrews still tell us that the Father is still his God, right? It's that tension. It just, they somehow coexist. You cannot just take one and assert that this side is truth and totally dismiss the other. It's it just, you're going to be unfaithful to the scripture if you do that. You guys are with me? Yeah. All right, let's move on. Verse 11 and verse 12. Start with the word end. So now he is quoting another verse. So he quoted from Psalm 45. Now he's quoting from Psalm 102 to back up his point that Jesus is God in his nature. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Who is uh, the author of Hebrews talking to here in Hebrews uh, 10 to 12? Talking to Jesus, absolutely. You guys are with me? He's talking to the Son, right? Remember the context? He's comparing the Son to the angels, and he said the angels are made ministering spirit. But as of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, and you, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth. You guys are with me, right? So the author of Hebrews is applying both Psalm 45 from the Old Testament and Psalm 1 and 2 from the Old Testament. He's saying that these two verses here don't talk about God. They talk about the Son. They don't talk about the Father. They talk about the Son. You guys are with me? Okay. And you, O Lord, in the beginning you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a clock you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never fail. Can I have an amen? This is so powerful. Amen? This is just so good. Now, look at this. Again, Psalm 1 and 2, if you go back into the context whom do you think the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 102? Who is the psalmist talking to? God. 
Definitely God, right? There is no question. If you're a Jew, you're reading Psalm 102, and you see David or whoever wrote that psalm saying, And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth. There is no question in your mind that you're talking to God Almighty, right? But the author of Hebrews took that exact same verse and he said, Oh, wait a minute. That's not really the father. That's actually the son that the, uh, that the psalmist was talking about here. Amen? Amen. Uh, these words, I just love how Morris, uh, Leon Morris put it. He said, these words of Psalm 1 and 2 are applied to God. There are applied, uh, who were, uh, that was applied to God, are here applied to Christ without qualification or any need for justification. Isn't that just awesome, right? He didn't need to modify the verse from the Old Testament to make it more fit like Jesus. He didn't need to justify why he's twisting it a little bit. He just took the words verbatim that talks about God and he applied it to Christ in, Psalm, um, in, in Hebrews 10 to 12. No, without qualification or no need for justification. Amen? Amen. Now, if you are... Um, all right. If you are... Uh, let's say you're a Jew. You're reading Psalm 1 and 2. You don't know anything about the New Testament. And you read this verse. And you, Lord, that's David speaking to God, say, And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. If you're a Jew and you're reading that verse, not knowing anything about Jesus, guess what? Where your mind going to go to? Your mind going to go to Genesis 1-1. What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, Right? And here, David, uh, I think it's David who wrote Psalm 1 or 2, is, it seems like he has Genesis 1-1 in mind when he's addressing God. And he said, you, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, right? There's no question, if you're a Jew reading this, you, there is no question that you know for sure that David here is actually referring to Genesis 1-1, right? Yes. Think about that. Genesis 1-1. Psalm 1 and 2, and the author of Hebrews talk, takes all of that and say, No, Psalm 1 and 2 is not talking about the Father, it's talking about the Son, right? And remember, David's intention was meditating on Genesis 1 1. You can even go back further and say, The author of Hebrews actually think that Genesis 1 1, when it says, In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the word God here is a reference to the Son. You guys are with me? You, you follow me? Clear like mud? All right. So Genesis 1-1, meditated at, in, in Psalm 1-2, quoted in Hebrews 1-8. The author of Hebrews tells us that through it all, it was the Son who made everything, who made the heavens and the earth. Amen? Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, or the Old Testament, has it a little bit different. The Psalm 1-2, let's actually flip the page. Psalm 1 and 2 reads this. It reads, well, I'm sorry. I lost it. Let's go back. Page 3. And I think it's uh, paragraph 2 at the very end of paragraph 2. Um, Psalm 1 and 2 or 101 in the Septuagint, verse 26, read this. And in the beginning, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. Okay? That's the actual translation for in the Septuagint. You guys, you guys see that paragraph? Paragraph 2. In verse 10 to 11, okay, the very end. But the author of Hebrews, when he quoted it, he actually switched it around a little bit. 
And instead of saying, and in the beginning, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, he said, and you, in the beginning, O Lord, have laid the foundation of the earth. You guys are with me? So he took the word you from the middle of the sentence, and he put it in the beginning of the sentence, and that is intentional, because he's trying to link verse 10 to 12 with verses 8 to 9. You guys are with me? So he's linking you, he's putting it in front to say, I'm still talking about the son. Psalm 45 talks about the sun and this Psalm 1 and 2 also talks about the sun that's why he brought the word you from the middle of the sentence put it at the first of the sentence to be emphatic to link these two quotes together from Psalm 45 and from Psalm 1 and 2 amen and that tells us also one thing that the author of Hebrews in his mindset in 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 in, in Psalm 45 when it says your throne oh God right and then in Psalm 1 and 2 when it says you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation. The word God in Psalm 45 and the word Lord in Psalm 102 in the author of Hebrews' mindset are linked and are synonymous to each other. Are you guys with me? Yes. Clear? Yes. Amen. Now, we know for sure that there's only one person the Bible talks about who never changes. You know who that is? God. He actually said it in, in, I think it's in Malachi, if I remember. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. That's why he said, said, I don't change. I am the same, right? Yet the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus never changes either. Amen? 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 Jesus never changes. And if you look at how he quoted these verses, if you look back with me... Um, you see that when it comes to nature, the author of Hebrews used the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. You guys are with me? Yeah. So if you go back to verse 10 and 12, he says, In the past, what happened to heaven and earth? The Lord has laid their foundations. Okay? And in the present, the author of Hebrews say, They are the work of your hand, as of now, right? And in the future, they will change. They will grow old. You will fold them like a clock. So when it comes to heaven and earth and the action of nature, the author of Hebrews used past tense, present tense, and future tense to indicate that they do change, right? But when it comes to Christ, he doesn't do that. Amen? And verse 11, he says, But you remain. You guys are with me? But you remain. He doesn't say, But you remain in the past. Or, You will remain in the future. You guys are with me? Just the ever-present remain. They change. They were created in the past. They exist for now. They change in the future. But through it all, you remain. Amen? With you, there is no past, present, and future. You are ever present. Amen? And even at the very end of verse 12, he says this, But you are the same. Not you were the same. Not you will be the same. But the ever-present, you are the same. And your years, your years shall never fail. Amen? Amen? What the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. Jesus never changes. Amen? He himself said in Hebrews 13 this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus never changes. Amen? Amen. Let me read these last two paragraphs for you. The immutability, the fact that Jesus never changed, the immutability of Christ should be the foundation of our Christian living. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Listen, the world will persecute you. They might be friendly to you today. They might turn against you tomorrow. Amen? 
Your own children might abandon you. Your friend could turn against you. Your own body will give up on you. Sin will never cease from tempting you and Satan will never cease from accusing you. Sometimes you'll get it right, but many times you'll get it wrong. You can be promoted at your job tomorrow morning. You can be fired from your job tomorrow morning. Amen? But in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, while we're living in this ever-changing world, you should anchor your soul, your joy, and your peace in the never-changing Christ. Amen? Amen? Let me read that one more time. While you're living in this world, in this ever-changing world, you should anchor your soul in the never-changing Christ. Amen? Amen? You can be sick with the flu or have a terminal cancer. Jesus remains healer. Amen? It doesn't matter how hard the sickness is, He still can do it. Amen? If He answers your prayer the way you want Him to answer, or if He doesn't answer your prayer the way you want Him to answer, He's still able regardless. Amen? If you are faithful, if you are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen? If everything is going well your way or nothing is going well your way, he still remains good. He never changes. Amen? Amen. For those of you who weren't here last week, I sat down at Starbucks last Saturday at 3.30 p.m. writing these two paragraphs word for word. Two hours later, 5.30, Katrina calls me and she says that she's feeling off. Her, she's feeling that shoulder pain and that pain is going through her neck. We go to the urgent care. So many of you, you know the story, some don't, but we go to the urgent care and the doctor does an AKG on her and then the doctor comes back and says there's something off with her heart. Take her to the emergency room. Now I'm start panicking at this point, right? You go to the emergency room, Two hours later, they ran all sorts of tests, and everything comes back negative. Praise God. Amen? Amen. But from the moment the doctor said, there is something off, and she's ex- exhibiting standard symptoms of, of a heart attack, till the moment that the doctors at the ER said everything is off. Think about this. I just wrote these words two and a half hours yeah. earlier. I didn't think I'm going to experience that two and a half hours later, right? That my world might be changing once and for all two and a half hours later, right? When I say that the world around us can't change, I really mean that. This is not just a, a sermon for you to, to, to say, oh, that's a good sermon and go home. This is the way we should live. Amen? During that time, from, my, from the time I heard the doctor's report till the time the doctor in the ER said that it's fine, these words I was just reading to you right now. Jesus never changes. Amen? He is good. He is able. He is faithful. It doesn't matter what comes your way. What doesn't matter what changes happen to you. Even if your best friend turned against you, Jesus still remains able and he remains good. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's all stand and I want to uh, close with, the, with, with that song.